If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 4. Psalm 4. We've been looking at the issue of prayer and the Psalms. And why the Psalms? Because they are, in fact, a collection of prayers. Some of the things we've seen in the past few weeks is that, first of all, everyone prays. I'm I'm absolutely convinced of that. Having said that, I think people think they can pray any way that they choose to. I mentioned this before. Let's be clear. We are not saved by the way that we pray. Um, We are saved by God's grace and his mercy. It's by his grace alone. So our prayers may be clumsy or they may be very skillfully put together. They may be doctrinally correct or they may in fact be filled with theological error. They may be word for word from scripture or they may be something that we ad lib as we go along. But in any case, they don't gain us any favor from God or any merit from God. Right words and correct forms are not required to gain an audience with God. God hears us whenever we call out to him. Having said that, I think that there is a right way to pray. And that's what we've been looking at in our series together. We've seen that prayer is answering speech. It is part of a conversation, a dialogue. God speaks first, and then we respond in prayer. Prayer is a tool that God uses to change our lives, to work his will in our lives. And we pray as those who are working with God as he seeks to work out his will in our lives. The Psalms are really important in this regard. One might even say that they are necessary. Because it is in reading and becoming familiar with the Psalms that we gain a certain facility, a certain skill when it comes to the matter of conversing with God in prayer. I think one can learn without the Psalms by trial and error, but I think we will miss something really important if in fact we neglect Scripture. God comes and he speaks. His word catches us in our sin and our folly. He finds us in our despair. And he invades our lives by his grace. We see this in the Psalms. And the Psalms train us in dialogue, in conversation. Now, we need to understand that the Psalms are part of Scripture. They have their own identity as a book. We call it the book of Psalms. But they are part of a larger book, that is, the Bible. And the only way to correctly know the Psalms is to know the Psalms in context with the rest of Scripture. They are not supposed to stand independently. They are not scraps of paper that were put in a bottle and thrown on the ocean. We have no idea where they came from or who wrote them, and somehow they've washed ashore, and now we read them to our own great delight. Um, We know quite a bit about the people who wrote these Psalms who prayed them and then wrote them down. When we read the Psalms, when we pray the Psalms, when we are trained by them, then we are entering into a tradition of the people of God. Centuries-long experience of being the people of God. But there's something we didn't count on. Um, I think we would be happy with just the book of Psalms. But... It's only part of the rest of Scripture. In the rest of Scripture, we have genealogies, we have conversations, we have dialogues, we have stories, we have laws, we have histories. Um, What we find out is that we are part of the people of God, and they're a rather noisy and troublesome bunch. 
We learn this in the Psalms and in the rest of Scripture. As we've seen in the past, Psalm 3 is the first prayer of the book of Psalms. It is introduced with the title or the words, A Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. This psalm is connected with a series of events that are recounted in 2 Samuel 13, 14, and 15. I talked about it last week, I just would mention briefly, it's a story of a rape in which a brother, a half-brother rapes his half-sister, but goes unpunished because he is the heir apparent. He is then assassinated by her brother, Absalom. Absalom goes into exile and then ultimately is allowed to come back, so he is not punished. And then as time goes on, he begins to undermine his father's authority and finally pulls off a coup, a coup d'etat, and David is on the run for his life. It is in the midst of being on the run from his son who wants to kill him that David writes Psalm 3. So this psalm was not written in a vacuum. It was written in the midst of an incident or an event. All of our lives have incidents, have events, have stories. We face conflicts, failures, fear, love, betrayal, as David did, love and even God's salvation. Every day is, in fact, a story. We have evening and morning that serve as the boundaries. And the days add up to a life that is a story. As I said, Psalm 3 is prayed in the middle of a story. I think all prayer should be. Not that all prayer is. But I would say that there are no storyless prayers. Again, let me take that back. There should not be any storyless prayers. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his book on this subject, says that story is to prayer what the body is to the soul. That is, the circumstances in which it takes place are really important. If you have a physical body without a soul, what you have is a corpse. And if you have a prayer without a story, you also have a corpse. That prayer is, in fact, to be spoken, is to be prayed in the midst of our living, in the midst of our stories. Most of the Psalms have titles to them, or a phrase, at the beginning. And many of them tell us what the story is, the context in which the psalm is spoken. Only 34 of the 150 do not. The most common title is of David. In fact, 73, almost half of the psalms are identified this way. And it is worth noting that of all the Old Testament figures, perhaps with the exception of Moses, we are told more about the life of David than anyone else. We are told about his life as a young boy. We are told about his singleness and marriage. We are told about his actions in war and in peace. His holiness, if you wish, and his sinfulness. His friendship and betrayals, his triumphs and his tragedies. And what we end up is with is a story that seems to cover the whole spectrum of human experience. This is a person about whom we are given many stories and from whom we are given many prayers. The outside of his story, if you wish, or the outside of his life is story. And this is what we find in First and Second Samuel and in First Chronicles. The inside of his life is what we find in the book of Psalms. So in Samuel and in Chronicles, we are given the plot. In the Psalms, we are given a way in which to receive the plot and the narrative, and it is fleshed out as we learn more about this man. 
it does seem that David's psalms usually start with him being in trouble. And this seems to confirm our sense that prayer oftentimes begins with trouble. We pray out of need. There's praise in these psalms and plenty of it, but trouble seems to be what gets things going. So I mentioned last week there are five divisions in the book of Psalms, or five books in the book of Psalms. The editors who put all of these psalms together over the centuries have divided them up that way. At the end of Psalm 41, we have the end of the first division. And it sounds like a conclusion. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. So that's the end of book one. And then book two begins in Psalm 42. At the end of Psalm 72, interestingly enough, a psalm by Solomon, we read, This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Well, two problems. First of all, this is written by Solomon. And second, there are a lot more psalms by David yet to come. But I think what the psalmist wants, or the editors want us to know, is that there are, in fact, five separate divisions. Book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. Why divide the psalms up this way? Why not, I mean, you have 150 psalms, why not just leave it as it lies? I think this was done in part to guide us and to protect us from the common error of presumptuous sin. That is, presumptuous prayer that we think we can just, you know, skate into God's presence uh, whenever we want to without first listening to him. There are five books in Psalms. There are five books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. And I would say that there is a matching between the first five and the five that we find in the book of Psalms. I think the reader needs to know, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be listening, instead of just going on and on on my own. But let's go back to the issue of story. Some of you know far better than I do that there's this kind of storytelling that is basically it relies only on the plot to get the effect. There's little development of character or uh, the cultivation of atmosphere. It's simply action. You know, This person does this, they do this, they do this. What they're thinking, how they feel, oftentimes doesn't seem to matter. Everything's exterior. The form, the incident, the action. On the other hand, there are writers who take us very much into the inner life of the individual. And we see the person growing. We, we learn more about their personality. We learn more about them as a person. In Scripture, we see subtle changes that sin brings about in a human's mind. But we also see God's grace working in our lives. As Christians, if we're not careful, we will be much more in tune with the plot and really not give much thought to what's going on inside. So we're all about the action rather than what people are thinking or feeling or what they are saying in prayer. Eugene Peterson calls it a kind of salvation according to James Bond. It's a quote, gaudy combinations of slogan and suggestion that promise diversion from boredom and omit mention of the demanding demanding interiorizing of faith. The example he uses is that of an adolescent. Remember, in your teenage years, at a certain point, you pretty much reached physically what, as tall as you were going to be, and you look, for all practical purposes, you look like an adult. But the fact is, inside, you are not. 
inside you're still growing, you're still maturing. The form is important. It's important that you have a body. That's part of what makes you human. But if, in fact, what is inside doesn't match what is outside, then there's a real problem. And so oftentimes you see people, and not just adolescents, who don't act their age. You know, physically they look like a particular age, but in terms of their actions, which flow out of the heart, it really doesn't seem to match. As Christians, we may in fact be adolescent, that is, we may have reached stature. People can say, oh, there's a Christian. But in terms of who we are interior and the interior, it really doesn't seem to, it doesn't match. It doesn't seem uh, to work out. Who we are inside needs to develop with who we are outside as the people of God. This is what we've seen in the past few weeks. Today, I want to talk about one other aspect of prayer that I think is important, and that is rhythm, the rhythm of prayer. The book of Genesis begins by describing the cosmos of the world as being formless and empty, without form and void. And one could argue this describes our lives. Things are not right. We are not right. Our emotions stampede. Our thoughts run riot. As Paul put it, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Or as Eugene Peterson put it, we can't, it seems, direct our own destiny with dignity or wisdom for ten consecutive minutes. And so we pray. We pray. And directed by the Psalms, we begin praying by listening. Before we say anything, we listen. And what do we hear? And God said, let there be light. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly across the, above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. You see, we go from chaos to order. And it happens in stages. Chaos becomes the cosmos. And you'll notice that the language is rhythmic. There is cadence. There is repetition. There is rhyme. God speaks the creation into existence. As we read in Psalm 33, For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Whether we realize it or not, whether we like it or not, we live rhythmically. It is implanted in our bodies. It is implanted in the cosmos, in God's creation. We have pulses. We breathe. We inhale and exhale. There are phases of the moon. There are seasons. There are rhythms. When it comes to speaking, we usually associate rhythm with poetry. Not, not with prose, but with, with poetry. But that's unfortunate because prose also has a rhythm to it. Um, the Psalms are written in the form we know as poetry. So it would seem to indicate 
that these prayers are rhythmic and that prayer itself should be rhythmic. I don't think we think in these terms, but this is what we find in Scripture. If breathing is rhythmic, we inhale and then we exhale, we need to recognize that we cannot breathe out until we have first breathed in. And it is God who breathes into Adam. He becomes a living soul. It is God who speaks to us. We listen, we inhale, and then in prayer we are able to exhale. But let's face it, most of our praying is not rhythmic. If, if, by the grace of God, we allow the rhythms of the creating word of God, that we listen to God as he speaks, and we allow it to shape our praying, we may in fact find expression in rhythm of prayer as the psalmist did. And what happens if we do this? What happens when we do this? I think the most conspicuous effect is it slows down our prayers. In the same way that one cannot or one should not speed read a poem, poetry cannot be hurried, in prayer we have to slow down as well. We have to slow down our minds and our lives to the pace of the poet's breathing, which includes pauses, silences, and more. Poetry requires equal time be given to both the sound, if you wish, and the silence. I would argue that I think in almost all human languages, silence is as important as sound. You wouldn't know it in our age, in our culture. In this day and age, people are impatient with silence. They don't like dead air. We need to talk, talk, talk. Peterson puts it this way, mobs of words run out of our mouths, non-stop, trampling the grassy and sacred silence. Why do we talk so much? And why do we talk so fast? You know, speed, I think, in, in language is actually a violence against time. See, the reason that we speak is not so that there's no more silence. It is, in fact, we are entering into the silence cautiously, or we should be, and reverently. The poet carefully arranges words in the context of silence. See, silence isn't what's left over when you're done talking. I'm finished talking, so now we can be quiet. No, it is in the context of silence that God speaks, and by God's grace, in, as we listen, we respond to him. Silence isn't what we do when, there's not, you know, when we're done talking. It's what gives meaning to the sound. Before we open our mouths in prayers, we should open our ears to hear what God has to say. The God who said, let there be light. The God who said, let us make man in our image. Our herky-jerky rebellion, our spastic ignorance is absorbed in the rhythms of, and God said... And then we read, and it was so. And we hear the rhythms of creation, evening and morning, evening and morning, evening and morning. Today we're going to look at two psalms briefly, Psalm 4 and Psalm 5. 
Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. Psalm 5 is a morning prayer. Follow along, if you would, as I read Psalm 4. For the director of music, with stringed instruments, the Psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love the delusions, love delusions and seek false gods? Selah. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than with when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As we've seen, the first two psalms prepare us to, to pray. So the first two psalms actually are not prayers. And then the first one that we have is Psalm 3, when David is on the run from Absalom. But now the editors have put in these two psalms, the evening prayer and a morning prayer. And I think the intention is to begin to establish that pattern in our lives, that cadence, that rhythm, as we listen to God and as we respond to him in the evening prayer and in the morning prayer. You will notice that the evening prayer comes first, and then the morning prayer. The evening prayer, after several hours of unconsciousness, is followed by the morning prayer. And one might argue, well, this is a Jewish thing, this is a Hebrew thing. But in reality, it is grace that is embedded in the earth's rotation. You see, in Psalm 4, it marks a transition from daylight, in which it is easy for us to imagine that we are in control, to nighttime when we sense that we are losing control. That in the darkness we actually don't know what's going on. We begin our lives in darkness in the womb. We are passive. And when we are born, we're not done with passivity. We spend a lot of our time sleeping. Sleep takes up much of our time early on, but eventually we reach a point when we don't need to sleep as much. And then we enter into the world of work in which there are things that need to be done. But we never reach a point at which we no longer need sleep, where we can say, listen, I, can, I don't need to ever sleep, I can go 24-7. Because in part, this is a, gives us a sense of being self-sufficient and being in control. Sleeping is a biological necessity, but as God's people, it is also an act of faith. Because the reality is, I want to stay in control. We want to stay in control of our lives. We want to know what's going on all the time. And when we go to sleep, by God's grace, we relinquish control. Not that we ever had it, but we go to sleep and trust that God, in fact, will take care of the world, even though we are not around to tell people what to do. Psalm 4 opens rather noisily. Answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. But then it ends with a quiet conclusion. If you look at verse 8, I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. 
The morning prayer begins, or the evening prayer begins rather noisily, but in between we find six verbs that I think calm us down, if you wish. That in fact allow us, by God's grace, to put our lives in his hands so that when we get to the end of the psalm, we are able to say, okay, I can go to sleep now. I can lie down and trust you. Before we get to those six verbs, though, we have contrast at the beginning and at the end. The first contrast is found in verses 2 and 3, between those who pursue futility and those who realize God's providence. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? And then the contrast, know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. The second contrast is found in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, the people who are always asking God for something, for what they do not have. And then in verse number 7, those who are overwhelmed by what God has given them. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. What are the six verbs in the middle of this psalm? Be angry. Interesting. Interesting that in the midst of the prayer of the evening prayer, we are told to be angry. See, no day is perfect. Things go wrong. Some things go wrong because that's the way it is. Others because of spite and malice. Don't make excuses. It's okay to be angry. But then we are told, but do not sin. Your anger should not lead you to begin to plan vengeance for the the coming days. What is wrong with the world is God's business. And we commit it to him. It is business that we may be a part of when we wake up in the morning. But when we go to bed at night, that is committed to him. So that I can be in fact angry and yet not sin. And then... We are told, search your heart on your beds. In the noisiness, the cacophony of the day, you may lose a sense of who you are. You may, in fact, have forgotten who you are. You become a stranger to yourself. And at the end of the day, as you are in your bed, search your heart. And be silent. This is the fourth verb, be silent. Nothing nothing more need be said. No explanations, no apologies. This is who you are. There is something that is more important than liking or not liking yourself. There's something more significant than the day's accomplishments and failures. That's you, a child of God. So in silence, be the person that God has made you to be. Be silent. Then we are told to offer right sacrifices. An offering is something placed before God so that he can do with it what he wants. Once offered, it belongs to God. It's no longer ours. So you've had your life all day. Now God will have it all night. It is his will to work with your offering. You've lived your day. Leave it on the altar. The day is over. Go to sleep. Leave your offering to God to work with it as he will. And then finally, we hear trust in the Lord. Trust him to do what is right. And then we go to sleep. It is the end of the day. It is evening. And then there is morning. I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me dwell in safety. And then we come to Psalm 5. 
This prays our re-entry, if you wish, into the waking world. Let me read it to you. For the director of music for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave, and their tongue, with their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. If we follow the rhythm of scripture, if we follow the rhythm that God has put into creation, when we wake up in the morning, the day is half over because it is evening and then it is morning. It's nighttime and then it is daytime. God has been at work. He hasn't been sleeping. We have. He has been at work. And when we open our eyes, we see what he has brought out of the darkness. Everyone wakes up. You could say everyone stretches. Everyone opens their eyes. So what? What's the big deal? Well, as God's people, we listen to God and we answer him in prayer. The word of God that brought us into being, the word of God that brought the light, has been spoken. And we ask God to listen to our answer. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help. For to you I pray. If you're like me, you may in fact doubt the value and the power and the sincerity of your praying. But we should never doubt that God hears. We may doubt ourselves, but we should never doubt God's hearing. The daylight world is full of danger. It's often dangerous. And Psalm 5 teaches us to discern and discriminate. It does this by contrasting the possibilities of evil action in verses 4 through 6 and obedient action in verses 7 and 8. And then we have the contrast in verses 9 and 10 of liars and flatterers with verses 11 and 12, singers and lovers. The key, though, to this psalm, I'm convinced, is verse number 3. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. As I've said before, and I said earlier in this series, everyone prays. I think even people who don't believe in God pray. And I think everyone assumes that they can pray any way they please. That there's no prescribed way to do it. There's no right way or wrong way to do it. God included the book of Psalms in scripture to teach us how to pray. 
to teach us to pray the way that we should. And part of that includes rhythm, a sense of evening and then morning. Evening when we are filled with fear because we are no longer in control, not that we ever were, but we imagine that we were, but evening in which before we go to bed we commit ourselves to God and say, this is your world, you know, I, I did these things this day, I don't know how it's going to work out, if it's going to blow up tomorrow or if it's going to work out well, these are committed to you. And then after hours of being asleep and our body regenerating, we wake up and we don't know what the day will bring. We assume that there might be some difficulties, some dangers even. But at the beginning of the day, we can pray to God because he's the one who has spoken and that's why the day has come to be. And we respond in prayer. The book of Psalms is a book of prayers, but it's found within the whole context of Scripture. And that's why we don't just have the New Testament and Psalms. That's why we just don't have Psalms. We have the whole thing. And from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, God is speaking. I'm not sure that we're listening. We're not inhaling, if you wish. And so when we exhale, it's simply whatever we feel like saying. There's no sense of conversation. I don't think that this has ever happened to me. It may have, but I don't, have you ever been in a conversation with someone that you speak to them, you say something to them, and then when they, what they respond to you makes no sense whatsoever. It has nothing to do with what you just said to them. I think that's the way much of our prayer lives are. God has spoken and we respond and it's sort of nonsense because we haven't been listening. We've just been talking, talking, talking. The book of Psalms is to teach us how to pray. There's evening and there's morning. It's a new day. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. But I fear it is a gift that we abuse, either through neglect or from simply doing it the way we want to. By not listening, we simply speak. And we make ourselves the center of the conversation. And we expect you to respond to us. Rather than recognizing the reality that you are the creator, you you spoke the world into being. From chaos came order. In the same way you speak in our lives, and by your grace you take us from almost spastic actions into a sense of order as we listen, as we respond in prayer. In a world that seems to refuse to listen, may we be good listeners. May we listen to you. May we hear you. And may we never doubt that you hear us. As we go to bed at night, as we get up in the morning, May we pray and trust you. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. May we have a sense of your presence in the coming week. pray in Jesus' name. Amen.